and good to be with you all in the house of the Lord. It is good for us to remember that it is the Lord's house. I always enjoyed that song. It's a very simple one. It's one that uh, the children uh, at certain ages do tend to gravitate to and like. It's a simple one with a simple idea. Children have even spent time building things with blocks and Legos. So it's easy to picture something that is made with hands. It's very difficult to picture something that is not made with hands. As a matter of fact, there's, it's very difficult to imagine a building that you can tell was manufactured or made, and yet imagine it as having been made without having been made with hands. We are that building. Oftentimes in English, the word church is used both for the building itself and for the people. But we are, we are that building, not made with hands. About a year and a half ago, almost two years ago, I decided to start uh, going through a, a, just a message on the five, a series of messages on the five doctrines that we hold to so, deep, so dearly. And today I intend to hit the fifth one and the final one, and that is the preservation of the saints. Now in the last 24 hours, quite a few things have come to mind. Some were recent events and some were uh, things that I remembered from a long time ago. When I was a very young man, we went to a church that had a scandal wherein the pastor had to step down. And if you've ever been to a place like that, it strikes you so deep and you don't realize how many things you lean on and hold to that are dependent upon sinful men and sinful women. And then when you think about how dangerous the world is in the hands of an angry God, it changes your perspective on the importance of the preservation of the saints. Jesus told us not to fear them who can destroy the body, but to fear him who can destroy not just the body, but also throw the soul in hell. That's Jesus' words. We must remember to take that, of, that advice he gives us and put it at the front of our minds and to remember who exactly you are dealing with when you pray to the Almighty God and the power that he has and who it is that we should properly fear. For to fall away from him is not just a matter of letting people down. It's not just a matter of not being the person you thought you were. To fall away from him would mean complete and utter ruin. To a degree, our imaginations simply lack the ability to reach. I think I've said this before, that those who are his saints bound for heaven here have the most of hell you will ever have, and you have never known a moment where he wasn't near you. Those who are destined for hell, this is the most of heaven they will ever have. And finally and fully, they will be cast out from the presence of God forever. Forever. The stakes, beloved, are so high that it is impossible to properly measure them. We are talking about forever. We are talking about a God who lives forever, who has lived forever, from whom life eternally springs. We are talking about a God who loved his son so much that he then gave him the power to have life in himself. That's what Jesus said. He said, I, he has given me to have life in in myself. Now, if you think of God and all of his powerful position and all of his terrible majesty, and then you think about how loving and giving he is, that he gave even the very power of being God itself lovingly to his son. Then you consider that he gave then that son to you, that you should not have to endure the eternity of hell and being separated from God. It does change does change how we look at him, not just in quivering fear, but with gladness. We look at him and we see the day that's new outside. We remember the words that he told us that his mercies are new every morning, every morning. One of the events of the last 24 hours was, of course, the accident we just spent time praying for. Our safety is not promised to us. Our safety is of the Lord. But our physical safety is nothing more than a picture of our eternal safety the safety of our souls the safety of our true person God has never been too weak to save anyone I'd like to just kind of go back to where I first started when I brought the message on total depravity in Isaiah 59 it says behold the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear but your iniquities have separated you, separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. 
For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue hath muttered perverseness. None calleth for justice, nor any pleadeth for truth. They trust in vanity and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. That is, beloved, the state of the human race were it not for the divine intervention of our Father in heaven, who encourages us again and again to call him Father. And then his Son and his Spirit, who has preserved us to this day. It's amazing to think about how the Word of God has spread continually, consistently in the same for 2,000 years since he walked this earth, it being itself proof of his preservation of us. His preservation of us. Now, that passage is very heavy and harsh, and that whole chapter is very good um, and very deep. But I want you to remember the first part. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save. That always makes me think of if you ever go to a restaurant with a bunch of people and whoever picks up the check first has to pay. And there's that saying, alligator arms, right, where all of a sudden people just can't reach that far across the table, right? God's hand never was unable to reach. Never. It says, neither is ear heavy that it cannot hear. I'm sure there's times when you have friends or loved ones, maybe you have children around, where sometimes you are just sick of listening to whatever it is that they're talking about, right? We've all been there, that moment when we just, right now we just don't have it to give. His ear has never been heavy. He's never been tired of hearing us. He is so, he so loves us and so cares to hear us that when he sent his son, he gave his son instruction to pray in his most mighty name. I always love hearing Elder Chuck Smith pray because it encourages me to remember the mighty God and the mighty gift that he gave us in our ability to pray directly to him. So you see, his hand has never gone weak. His ears have never gotten tired of listening to the end that he encourages us again and again to continue in praying. And then Jesus lived his life as an example, continuing to pray again and again on earth. But these things... While I could uh, continue, as Elder Chuck Smith would say, down that rabbit hole, uh, that matter of prayer and how important it is that we privately in our own lives continue to pray nonstop, I'd like to lean heavier on his preservation. His preservation. There's a number of passages on this subject in the scriptures. As a matter of fact, if you were to just start reading the Bible and highlight only passages that talk about how he will preserve us to the end, you will very quickly run out of pages of scripture that don't have highlighting on them. Because he, again and again, all through scripture, tells us how he will save you. The point is, beloved, that you need saving. You need saving. Preservation means nothing if you don't fear the fall. I said there was a few things in the last 24 hours. Last night, I saw a friend of mine put on his first concert, the band, that he had been working with for basically since the pandemic started, or a little before that, actually. And they had a six-piece set, a bunch of dads put together. Uh, they had put together about seven songs. One of the songs, he was up there, the lead singer of the band, screaming, Who Can Save Us All? I met him five years ago, about, at a county fair near us, where... The church he'd been going to had a tent, and he was just out there holding a sign that said, Can I pray for you? We became friends, fast friends. I walked up, I said, Absolutely, please. Many things I need prayer for. My wife was expecting again. We just moved to a new town. We uh, hadn't made any friends yet. We needed people to comfort us. We had a great many concerns. And so I gave him a couple. I didn't give him everything. But then he prayed for me. And we became friends for a while. He had a Bible study in his house. And then he had a medical incident. And after that, he, he no longer trusted in God. I've been to a lot of concerts in my life. It was a way of life for me for a long time. Had a lot of friends in bands, quite a few. I was always there. Always, uh, I'd like to follow them around and go to whatever shows they put on. But when you see a friend who at one time knew and trusted in God, screaming at the top of his lungs, who can save us? It reminds you, it should remind all of us, how that we would all fall away if it was up to us. Every one of us. The sad things that happen in life, death itself, 
our own sinning, the suffering caused by our sinning, the suffering caused by the sinning of others. It's mighty discouraging, isn't it? With our eyes, we see things we desire. With our eyes, we see the world wrong. But thanks be to God, who grants that we should see things right through his word, who grants that we should love him because he first loved us. Because, beloved, our preservation and our necessary salvation is so far out of our hands that our hands would always draw short. If you've ever seen the never-ending story, if you're a child of the 80s or 90s, it may have been very impactful. But there's this scene, the whole point of the movie is that uh, imagination is going away as all the children were being entertained by things and not using their imagination anymore. And it's this story of the fake world of all the things people had made up falling apart with uh, being taken by this thing called the nothing. And in it, there's this giant stone monster. And he's a product of someone's imagination. And all of his friends have been taken away by the nothing. And he says, I thought they were such big, strong hands. That's exactly where we would be if we had to hold our salvation. But praise be to God, because he said, that is Jesus, that of all of those that the Father gave to him, he would lose none. There is not a single person that was planned way back in eternity past by the Father who shall fall away, finally and fully. Now, how we live now, that's a whole separate conversation I don't think I'll get to. How we live now does matter, because there are things to gain. Jesus talked more of a reward than I think anyone else in Scripture. But I talk only primarily of preservation and salvation. So we were preserved, or we are preserved by his plan and purpose. His plan and purpose. As I said, Jesus revealed to us that of all the Father gave to him, he should lose none. So the Father gave, right? He knew who they would be. He knows the number. That's how he knows he would lose none. Because if he could lose one, uh, it, would, it would require in part him to um, have possibly lost count. So he knew from eternity past exactly who his would be from the very beginning. He planned it, and he had a purpose to do it. But then we are preserved also by his promise. His promise. The end of that chapter that I started with in Isaiah 59, it finishes and it says, And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. As for me, and this is the important part because it's, he talked about you, right? He said, as for you, you, your sins separated us, created a gulf in between us. I didn't get weak. But as for me, he says, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. My spirit that is upon thee and my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth and forever. So when God promises that something is going to continue, such as his word, we should both be amazed at how great and strong and powerful he is, that he would reveal these things unto us. Also, be unsurprised that his word has continued to go out. At that word, here, at this time, him that he sent his spirit upon, you know, of course, who he is talking about here, it has never once failed to continue to share his word. His word by which all of us have been saved. His word by which all, we, all of us were saved. So we can see that he promised that we would all be preserved. But he says this in multiple places and in many ways. He promises us. In John he says, Whosoever drinketh the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. I know I spoke on that particular passage just a few months ago, so I won't get too deep into it. But here again, we have a promise from God that that life shall spring up within us in a way that life is already in him unendingly. He has so much life, he can continue to create all he wants and never, ever, ever be weaker. Never, ever have less strength for all the strength he exercises. And of that life, he gives to be in us. What an amazing, amazing promise. In the Psalms, it's put like this. The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. Forsake not the work of thine own hands. Now, the difference between this passage and some of the others, it's, it's actually someone singing to God. It's a prayer that you can pray. How often have you reminded God of his promises? It's, I think, a fitting question, right? Because we see that pattern all the time in the scriptures. So when you think about these promises by which you are preserved, I implore you, 
to also use them in your prayers, in your communication with God. Because that's the example that he gives. The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. That's how you should talk about yourself. You should remember, because that's a right thing to say. It's a right thing to pray. That's in Psalm 138. The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. Again, there's that theme that his mercy is new every morning. And then it lasts. It doesn't ever stop. Beloved, everything we do depends upon that mercy. I don't think any of us have properly considered how bad sin is. How bad sin is. I mean, the necessary effect has been the death of everyone who ever lived, right? But the fact that he is merciful over that becomes, as we grow closer and closer to him, as we continue on that path towards that shining light that grows brighter and brighter until that perfect day, we must begin to see how amazing it is that sinners like us should have God's mercy shed upon us. But more than that, that you are encouraged to pray reminding yourself and God about that mercy. Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. Forsake not the work of thine own hands. We just sang about that, didn't we? We are that building, which is not made with hands here below. But we are his workmanship. He takes pleasure in making us more his every day and sanctifying us. But of those works that he does, his preservation of us is one that we should lean into and be glad of. Especially in those dark hours, especially in those discouraging moments. Because he encourages us to lean into it, to use his word, and to be comforted by it. In 1 John, John writes most encouragingly on the same subject, where he says, These things have I written unto you, that ye believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. What an amazing thing. What an amazing thing. That first, again, you see this connection here between God's preservation of us and the open door of prayer. Scriptures keep putting it to us like that, and so we should lean into it, and we should be glad. But he says, these things have I written unto you that ye believe in the name of the Son of God, and that ye may know that ye have eternal life. Why are these things written? That you know what you have. It is very surprising to consider how that if we have been saved, we have been called according to his purpose, we have heard and we have seen and tasted that the Lord is good, how that we can forget. But the fact that we can forget is evidence to us by how the scriptures remind us again and again to be comforted that you have eternal life. Right? The Lord knows us. He knows our frame. He knows the work he's doing in us. And so he gives us these comforts. And so be comforted. Be glad. Be glad that you have this confidence, not just a preservation of eternal salvation, but also that he is your savior today. That you can lean, and talk, lean on him and talk to him today. As easily as if one of my children were in trouble and they wanted to just come and sit with me and talk to me. We are that near to him all the time because of the work that Jesus did for us on the cross. So we are preserved by his plan and purpose. We are preserved by promise. We are also preserved by his prayer. His prayer. Remember what Jesus said to Peter. He said, Satan desired to have you to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. So your preservation is not just a matter of the work he did behind the scenes in the past. Not just a matter of the work he's doing that you can't see presently. But also, it's his perpetual communication on your salvation. That he would have you not destroyed. He would have you not cast out and devoured by that roaming lion, the enemy. There's a few places where this is most eminent in the scriptures. One of them is that passage that we all know and love in Romans chapter 8. He says, who is he that condemneth? Of course, we know who the primary accuser of this world is, Satan. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us all. There's that word all again. All 
he has given me, I shall lose none. He is so wise, so strong, and so powerful, he can perpetually know every problem of every one of his saints, both inwardly and outwardly, all the time, and know exactly what to pray for at every moment. I mean, think about how wise and great and good our God is, that he would then elect to spend his time sitting next to his father while his father makes his enemies his footstool and speak to him about us. Oh, wandering, backsliding, slipping saints, he cares for you. And so he sits there and makes intercession for us. As a matter of fact, he only sits there and rests while his father does all the work. Except, as we saw when um, Stephen was martyred, we saw Stephen said he saw him standing at the right hand of the throne of God. He cares for us and watches so much that he even stands up to receive one of his saints into heaven. Right? So this perpetual communication that we have in the Godhead is a comfort to you. Again, you are preserved by his prayers. Right? Don't think your prayers count for nothing if the Son perpetually prays to the Father about you. Your prayers must mean something. Right? Again, because you don't pray in your own name, you pray in his name. Again, he did all the work, he does all the work, and he is the one who will preserve you. I don't know that I'll have time to get into it too much. We'll go back to it if I have opportunity. But I would implore you, if you want to think about how good God is in his prayer for us, remember that he prayed and documented it and preserved it for you to this day in John chapter 17. Right? He says things like, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Right? Why? That they all may be in one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, and the world may believe that thou hast sent me. See, God is very concerned about your salvation. He is so concerned that he is perpetually in prayer for your salvation. And so again, you are preserved by his prayers. But when you hear all this, then you find yourself having sinned, find yourself out of the way. Find yourself having done something that makes your conscience cry out at you, either properly or with the enemy doing his work of discouragement. You might say, but I am horrible. Yes, you might be right. In Leviticus, we see the word of God, his law, revealing some of God's person, some of his character. In it, there's a lot of talk about leprosy. Leprosy, thank God, is something I have never seen or been near in my life. But it is the perfect picture of sin. It spreads gladly from person to person. And what it touches, what it grows on, it kills. Dead. It makes, them, makes a leper, someone that has it, an outcast. Ruins their life, ends them. And it kills the parts that it kills so badly that they can't even be felt anymore. This is... I think the most perfect picture of sin in our lives. So I think it's wise that God didn't just preserve it for us, but gave us a lot of laws about it so we could understand just how bad it was. It says in Leviticus, it says, And the priest shall look upon the plague and shut it up that hath the plague seven days. And he shall look upon the plague the seventh day. If the plague be spread in the garment, either in the warp or the woof, or in the skin, or in any work that is made of the skin, the plague is a fretting leprosy. It is unclean. He shall therefore burn the garment, whether warp or woof or woolen or linen or anything of skin where the plague is, for it is fretting leprosy. It shall burn in the fire. So this horrible plague, again, I want you to think about it just for a moment as it compares to sin. Beloved, all you are in front of him is clothed with filthy rags. Think about that analogy that scripture has used. My children don't even know what that means yet. Scripture says that's, that's exactly what your garments look like before the holy God. I would suggest that you also look like this, like a leper wearing leprous clothes. Your clothes themselves are so poisoned with sin that if anyone else touches them, it will get them this nasty killing disease as well. But you are not preserved by your clothes. You are not preserved by your purity. You are preserved by his clothing, his purity. By his blood by which we wash ourselves. In Isaiah, it says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me 
with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, as a bride adorned herself with jewels. We're not just given clean, fresh clothes, beloved. There are, I don't think, any better clothes that are made on the planet than when a bride adorns herself for wedding. It is, it is the very best of the best. You bring your best things, and sometimes you bring uh, your family history if you have an inherited dress, right? It is the most beautiful moment. Beloved, he doesn't just exchange your nasty things for equal, clean things. He, he exchanges them for the very best things. You now are garbed with clothes of your salvation. He hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. I know you've heard that kind of verbiage before, right? We put on our armor of salvation, or our armor, uh, the armor of God, as we call it, right? The black breastplate of righteousness. Well, remember that, that righteousness is not ours. We have a song we sing about the uh, armor of God, where he says, um, but, but let righteousness imputed be the breastplate of thine heart. Righteousness imputed. See, we're not just preserved by God's plan. We're not just preserved by his promise. We're not just preserved by his prayer. If any one of those were the only thing we were preserved for, I think it would be enough. Because it's coming from God himself. We're also preserved by his purity. His purity. It's his garments. These things should comfort you. Because when you do good in the world, that's something we can give glory to God for. Which was our original purpose. We were put on this earth, like everything else was, to bring glory to God, to reveal something about him, something about his wisdom, his beauty, his grace, his mercy. Well, when you walk around and are able to then walk in any way that is holy, in any way, if you're able to seek and strive for godliness in the world, that which was unattainable for you, you then can show glory, God's glory to the world. The way the stars do from heaven, the way the sun does every morning, right? The way of the mountains and the streams and all the beautiful things that we get to see and hear every day that show forth his goodness, his greatness, his mercy, his wisdom. You get to take part in that, and that should comfort you. Now, we know that we must be mindful of our own pride. It is one of those great evils that has caused many a man to slip, starting from the first man on and on. But that doesn't mean we should take away what is rightly his. His glory. It's your job to show forth his glory in the world. But that's a comfort to you because you are preserved with goodness that is not your own. You are preserved with these, the clothing of your salvation that was given to you. You were washed, not just washed in any regular thing either. You were washed in the very lifeblood of our Savior. Made clean. So these things, beloved, let them comfort you. Here it says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord for this thing. Beloved, we're not just preserved to survive the day. We are preserved to greatly rejoice. He loves us not just so that we stop hating him. Not just so we stop our war on God. He loves us and makes it so that we can then love him. Let these replacements be more than enough. More than just something to comfort us, but also something to give us great joy. says, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Perfected forever. See, this clothing you have put on, this, this death he gave, he only had to do it once. He only had the animals in the Old Testament. They had to keep killing them again and again. But he was the perfect sacrifice. He was the right and fitting sacrifice for our souls. So in this, we can be glad. We can be comforted. Because he was perfect, because he was pure, you are now in God's sight, made pure. And again, if it was only his purity, if it was only that one sacrifice, that would be enough. But we are also preserved by his power. I said it, didn't I? His hand is not shortened. He has never known weakness. Now, unless I am mistaken, there's only one time he ever even took a rest, and that was so you would follow his example. I appreciate you all following his example today and resting in him now. He has never been weak. His power has always been great. And I want to just lean back on that passage we were just in in Romans 8. I read to you verse 34 before. Let's pick right up where we left off. 
He then says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither life, I'm sorry, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There's a many things he could use here as his primary purpose for preserving us. We know he does it here by his power, and he declares it. But his primary purpose is his love. His love for us. Anything else, you might think that you could screw it up. If it was because of his expectation of our righteousness. Right? Or many other things. But here, he just, he just loves us. He never explains why. He never takes the time to do it. Right? I can give excuses for why I love my children. I think some of them are pretty obvious. But he never tells us. All he, all he tells us is he loves us because he loves us. And then we suddenly reply with a tender heart that we didn't used to have. We suddenly reply with eyes that can see. We suddenly reply loving him. Doing that thing again that we were created to do in the first place. I think of uh, my friend's band and so many other bands I've listened to. And almost every single time you listen to a song that touches you, it's often a different description of something lost. A different description of some love lost, of something that you don't understand, something that doesn't make sense. Beloved, we have everything making sense. Right? There's the only reason we have left to lament is because we're not with him yet. That's it. We are just we have everything. Everything is explained in fullness and wisdom. The Bible is explained so deeply that the deepest swimmers can't find the bottom. And yet the Bible has is so uh, simply written that even the tiniest little ones can get in, get wet, and not drown. Right? It's explained so fully and so richly that I don't know why uh, I don't spend more time in it. Right? We should be very, very glad for these things. But the primary root of all those explanations, the primary root of that tender application of his mighty wisdom is his love for us. And his love for us is applied by his power. By his power. God doesn't say many things are impossible for him. God doesn't really talk much about possibility, except for the most important things, right? With man, it is impossible, he says. Right? When the disciples were asking who could be saved. Another point, he says, for there shall arise false Christs and false prophets. This is Jesus here. He says, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Now, what that's talking about is uh, Jesus is there giving a prophecy about trouble that was coming about trouble that was coming the way that's said sure makes it sound like everyone would have been deceived by it and that it is impossible that the elect themselves could be finally deceived right impossible now hidden in that very dark saying is quite a promise isn't it that it is impossible beloved that this connection that you have with god that he makes in your mind and in your heart with his word, that you can understand him. It is impossible that that should be able to be deceived by anyone. Right? We just read that in Romans, right? Where he said that who can separate us from the love of Christ? And Jesus says here, it's impossible that you should be deceived into losing the comfort of the knowledge of his word, wherein we have delivered to us an understanding of his mighty power by which he holds us. Again, you are preserved by his power. In the introduction to the first letter from Peter, he says, We are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I always like the saying, begin with the end in mind. I'm just finishing a week's vacation where I had a big project I wanted to do at the house, and we were really glad we were all able to do it with the help of uh, the rest of the family. We finished it up. And... When it's over and you make something happen the way you imagine it, it is a very satisfying feeling, isn't it? But God has never had something he endeavored to do without completing it. Never. The proof of that, in part, is the whole world is created and none of it just suddenly falls apart, right? None of it just suddenly, uh, you know, the, the magnetics of the earth don't suddenly go off kilter and the whole thing doesn't suck itself in onto itself, right? 
I mean, if God built the world poorly, we'd be, we'd be on edge all the time, right? If you ever lived in a place with earthquakes, you kind of get a bit of a feeling of that. But the things God does are made from the beginning with a plan to the end. Now, the amazing thing, again, is that God decides to tell you about it and me about it. Well, who are we that he should tell us that his plan from the beginning is to present you spotless for the throne of God and that he shall do it by his power. He staked his name and everything on it. Right? There's no higher thing he could have uh, staked onto it besides his name. So he came, he promised us that from now till then, he will be making us into something better. So let's be comforted by that promise and by that power by which that is done. A little before uh, that passage we were just reading in Romans, it says, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Them he also glorified. You're not just preserved in his power and purpose. You're not just preserved by his promise. You're not just preserved by his prayers. You're not just preserved by his purity. You're not just preserved by his power. You are preserved in the past tense. In the past tense, right? And when the Lord of time says the deed is done before now, I think we should trust him, right? The deed is done. You are preserved. You are glorified. Past tense. Now, I know we don't see yet. We see us through a glass darkly. But it is right that we should be glad that the deed is done. For all the works of hell that might be thrown against us, we cannot lose this comfort that the deed is done. When Jesus said at the cross, it is finished, he meant it. The way that was said was uh, often used as a term of, of a final reckoning at that time. Like, all right, the deed's done. Or paid in full, you might say, would be an adequate uh, version of what Jesus said on the cross. So when he said that, when he cried out, it is finished. Beloved, it's done. It's over. There's no more to be done by him to save us. Once he had to die, as we said before. So let's be comforted that you are preserved, not just generally, not just something you're hoping will uh, finally uh, be seen completed, but you are preserved finally and fully. Another place it says, Verily I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Hath. Again, that's past tense. Already has it. Already in their possession. Right? Because belief is proof of what God has already done. So your belief by itself is a comfort of his preservation. To believe in him at all. To be able to know and say that Jesus is the son of God. That he died for our sins. For our salvation. Is itself evidence of his preservation. Right? Think about that. Because remember. The enemy would love, would love to separate you, not just from the love of God, but from his word, from his knowledge, from his person, from his law. And so God wrote wrote it on your heart. And so God has preserved you, has given you, in the past tense, glorification. He says just before that, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is past past tense, past from death unto life, from death unto life. I often wonder about the mystery of us, we who have been the anti-God, we who have been dead, having fellowship with life, we who have been sin, he exchanged and became sin for us, now are alive, we who have been nothing but at war and hatred with God, now can love him. I don't know how God did it. It's an amazing thing to think that we can somehow have this perfect fellowship with him who cannot have fellowship with darkness, for he is light, and yet have been away from him. That by itself is a great mystery. But the fact that he has done what he did to us, again, preserving us in the past tense till now, is again a great mystery that I think we're going to get to continue to unfold the layers of over and over and over as with growing joy and gladness throughout the years of eternity when we are with him, and when we are like him, as he is. So if you have been preserved in the past tense already, you are preserved by his power, by his purity, by his prayer. And I know this is not an exhaustive list. I wasn't trying to be exhaustive. And there are only so many P words in the alphabet. By his prayer, by his promise, by his plan, by his purpose. How then shall you live? And what's next? Have I taken away the the saddest thing you could possibly be sad about? Have I removed a fear that we often leaned on? I don't know. I can tell you this. 
God gives us just a few simple instructions, you know, like an entire book, uh, to help us understand how then we can live. For you see, we no longer now have to work for our salvation. That was the thing that all the Israelites were desiring to do, right? All of their sacrifices were supposed to fix something that was broken. They were by themselves proof of how bad our sin was. All that blood, all those years, right? But now, salvation is no longer a concern. It's a strange thing to say to the whole human race, like I said. Who will save us? Who can save us all? My friend said. We're given very, very simple, though, instructions. In Ephesians, he says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Right? So you're sealed, closed, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So just don't grieve the Spirit. Don't grieve the Spirit. It seems very simple advice, and yet it is, in application, very, very complicated. It seems very complicated advice, and yet in application it is very, very simple. And why do I say those two things? Well, first, because the Spirit of God is the Spirit of God. Right? The Spirit of God by which you were washed and made clean. The Spirit of God by which life has been given to you. The Spirit of God by which you have communication with Him. By which you may groan with those prayers that you can't even find words for. It comes all by that one single source. But the Spirit of God is still perfect and sinless. We, although we are preserved, although we are preserved until that final day when he will present us, we still sin. The Bible says if we say we sin not, we lie. Right? We are still here below. We look forward to the day when sin will never, ever be a concern for us again. But right now, it's not the case. I don't know the state of my friend's eternal soul. I don't know if his name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We're not necessarily given to understand all these things. I know I will know one day, but I hope, I hope that this is just a season for him that he will be able to repent out of. I hope that for many people. But I know, beloved, that while you have the Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed, it should be a matter of deep consideration of not just idle thought in passing, but deep consideration that we don't grieve the Spirit. Because the Spirit can take it. Believe me, God can suffer many things as he continues to to this very day. I think there might have been those in the time of Christ who thought that he was going to be returning way back then, finally and fully, to remake the earth, to, to untie the elements that melted with a great fervent heat. But he has suffered 2,000 years of wrong, as the song says, that you might live to be saved. So he can suffer many, many sins, but we should not. We should not be the author of that if we can help it. Why? Because we desire to have that relationship more fully. There is no pleasure in your life that won't be better if you are in constant communion and consideration of God and his word. There's just not. Think about it. Think about anything you like to do and tell me how it would be worse if you weren't praying at the, at the time. If it would be worse, then maybe you should get rid of whatever that is, right? But to be in more constant communication with him is to be more like Christ. Think about what Jesus did. How often he rose early to separate, to be near the Father. He was referred to as being always in prayer and fasting. Always desiring to be near to the Father. This should be our right desire, right? This desire is given to us as a gift to be able to love him. So it is right that we should not grieve the Holy Spirit. But how? It says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Which probably means we need to delete our Twitter accounts, right? We have to be careful of things like bitterness. Bitterness. Now, of all the things that you can hear in the Bible, right, we're getting given this godly gift of him, his person. And he gave us salvation. He died that we can be with him and have him. And he says that something as small as bitterness is, is what he's asking us to pay, be mindful of, to pay attention to. In this day and age, come on. Yes, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking. We have children and boys, so that means that we have to discuss what kind of things we can talk about all the time, right? The question is, well, why? Why shouldn't we be able to talk about, you know, parts of animals and things like that and make jokes and call each other things? 
because what you say matters. And this is part of the proof of that. Evil speaking grieves the spirit of God within you that has done all this and continues to do all this and shall continue to do all this for you until that great day. So let's put those things off and then the inverse of that. Be kind one to another. It's a very simple instruction. But it doesn't grieve the spirit. It's right. And remember that in God, we are able to be kind one to another. Kindness is a wonderful blessing, a wonderful fruit and evidence of his presence in our lives. Beloved, it's one of those things that goes away when sinning becomes priority. Right? Sinning becomes priority. Kindness is a gift from God to us. And so if you can operate on this gift, please do. Be kind. Dwell peaceably with all men, he says, where possible. But be kind one to another, tender-hearted. Tender-hearted. That's hard to do. Especially hard to do if you're being bitter. I would suggest it's impossible. But be tender-hearted. Now, being tender-hearted, of course, might leave you feeling exposed. Might leave you feeling like, well, that's going to leave me in a place where I can get very easily hurt, right? Well, yes. Well, think about God, who has been tender-hearted to you from day one, from before day one, from eternity past, knowing every wound he would take for you. And yet, he goes on continuing to suffer these sins for all these years for our sake. So again, being tender-hearted, as much as it doesn't seem as glamorous and beautiful and great as some of the other things you might see in the world, this is the way that God has elected to reveal himself in you. To show that he still rules from the throne of heaven. His people, in this age, when again, year after year, men become uh, deceiving each other worse and worse, we're able to somehow be tender-hearted. That's proof that God is working right now on on the earth. Forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Forgiving one another. That's a hard subject. You can understand why Peter asked, tried to figure out exactly how much forgiveness he had to do. He wanted to kind of exactly know, what's the score here? Jesus made it very clear. And forgiveness does not stop. He knows things. God knows things you can't possibly understand. And it goes in two directions when it comes to forgiveness. The first is, he knows exactly how bad and how much and how terrible your sin has been to him, his work, his name. He also knows why he does it. He knows how greatly he loves you. You know in part, but you don't know yet. Not in part. Or in part, but not the whole. You know a little bit of how much he loves you. But his love for you is so great that it, he is glad. He rejoices that you can be forgiven. He, remember the, the story of the lost sheep or the lost coin. Ha, having you back, having you repent to him brings him such great joy that he will gladly do it again and again, forgiving nonstop. You could say that he has been forgiving nonstop since he put us on this earth. Miserable worms that we are. He continues to forgive again and again and again, and he takes such great pleasure in it. Shouldn't we desire to know this thing that God loves so much? Shouldn't we desire to be a part of that? If only that we can be closer to him? Yes. And that's part of us not grieving the spirit. Another place it says, I, I do like this, it's one of those very simple short verses. My children haven't figured out how to game the system yet. We have, a, we have an ongoing standing deal that if they memorize a verse, I give them a quarter. I'm surprised they haven't gone for these ones first and just you know, tried to, to um, put me in the poorhouse. It says, quench not the spirit. Quench not the spirit. You always, all should have a quarter when we get home today, all right? Quench not the spirit. Remember that one. Quench not the spirit. See, the spirit is not just uh, able to be grieved. But the Spirit is here, described almost like a fire inside of us. And we can... It won't go out. If you've read The Pilgrim's Progress, I think you've heard me give this analogy before. There's a scene in the House of Interpreter where there's this person throwing water on this fire. And for all that, the fire continues and it even grows. And you go onto the back side of the wall, and there's another man there pouring oil behind the fireplace into the fire. And interpreter tells Christian, he says, well, this is the man in the front is like Satan. And the man in the back is what is like Jesus. How that he continues to work in our hearts, right? He will not be able to remove 
the Holy Ghost from anywhere he wants to be. He is going wherever he wants to. He has taken you as his own. Be glad about that, but recognize his power. But we can quench the Spirit. So likewise, just as we were looking at in Ephesians, the same advice is given. Quench not the Spirit. Be glad. Be glad that God has worked in your heart. Be glad for the preservation he has kept you in until this very day. I just want to take one last look at that psalm. Because we're called to do one other thing. Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. Thy mercy, Lord, endureth forever. Forsake not the work of thine own hands. We are called to rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. So when you remember how that he has preserved you in all of these manifest ways, and if you have some other ones, I would certainly implore you to uh, grab me after because I always desire to learn more about this. I think that's what we're going to be doing in heaven is learning more and more about him in all his manifest ways and all his manifest glory because we're going to actually have him. We're going to be like him. We're going to be able to see him as he is, right? That's why they call it heaven because he is there. But while we're here below, when we get these comforts, it should give us the opportunity to do that one thing that Adam and Eve didn't do when God walked in the garden after they sinned. What did they do? They hid from him. They didn't rejoice. They weren't glad to see God. What a sad state of affairs that if God walked in our lives and we were ashamed again as we had been before. No. Beloved, let us rejoice. Let us rejoice. And he has not just taken the time and the work given up his very life, given up his son whom he loved for his love for us, but also that he has revealed it to us, that we would not be not just here below slowly becoming and being made like him, to be sanctified to be like him, but that we should not be at any moment discouraged. Think about all the ways he has taken the time to encourage you. Why? So that you can be courageously joyful and be glad of him. That you might cry out and pray to him, Lord, perfect me. Perfect that which concerns me. Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. Please forsake not the work of your hands. Thank you for your good attention.